Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Just fine. (laughs) We're getting so close to the spooky season, Ben. The leaves are changing, cold chill comes through the air. It's it's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to... October, we've got some exciting stuff coming down the pipeline for our patrons on Mm -hmm. Patreon. Uh, So if you don't know what that's all about, head over to patreon.com slash Podcast. Sign up for as much of a donation amount that you are comfortable with. Yeah, the special stuff we plan for October is available to all patrons regardless of level. Mm -hmm. Um, But you will still have, like... Our standard levels of $1 a thank you on the show, $5 bonus audio, $10 bonus written content from Ben. Yeah. But I'm, I'm getting pretty excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm also excited for today's movie. Yeah, because it's going to be a good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We've had so many bad ones. Um, okay, well, to set the scene, we are recording... At night, uh, it's kind of a fully, like a half harvest moon. (laughs) The moon is out. The moon is out and bright and golden. Mm -hmm. We are watching. We're watching The Picture of Dorian Gray from 1945. And Sarah and I have both seen this movie before. It's certainly one of our favorites. And I'm super excited that we finally get to talk about it on the show, I have a feeling there's going to be a lot to talk about, because not only does this movie, like, specifically have a lot to talk about and address in regards to it, but it is based on, of course, the famous novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, by the famous novelist, Oscar Wilde. And I am no expert in late... 19th century literature, but, you know, my years on this earth have led me to understand that Oscar Wilde is kind of a big deal. He certainly has a character about him. He would certainly tell you that he is kind of a big deal. Yes, absolutely. So, Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Willis Wilde, as was his full name. I'm sorry, one more time? Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Willis Wilde. Okay. Um, He was born in 1854 in Dublin. He was known for his biting wit, his green carnation boutonniere, Mm -hmm. and uh, being persecuted for his sexuality. Right. Yep. 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 That's... mm Mm-hmm. But let me back up to kind of tell you how he got there. Okay. Um, so he was born to Ireland's leading ear and eye surgeon as a father and an Irish nationalist mother. Okay. He was the middle of three children. Um, Ah, this explains a lot about his later (laughs) attitudes. While a child, he became fluent in French and German and was childhood friends with Irish author, or would eventually become Irish author, 
George Moore. Okay. While attending Trinity College in the early 1870s, he became very interested in the growing literary and philosophical movement known as aestheticism. Is this also when he became very interested in other men? That just happens in college, Ben. Mm -hmm. Yep. We all go through this. This interest was strengthened while he was at the Magdalen College from 1874 to 78. So let me, like, hit pause real quick and tell you about aestheticism. Yeah, for sure. You know that phrase, art for art's sake? Mm-hmm. That's, that's straight from the aesthetes. Mm-hmm. Um, they believed that art, so whether that's literary, fine art, that kind of thing, it really just needed to be beautiful rather than have any kind of deeper meaning. Gotcha. Beauty was the more important factor. Mm. So you would get these examples of almost like grotesque beauty because the idea is that like art should provide some kind of like pleasure or effect on your senses. Okay. And this is prioritized over art having any kind of moralist or sentimental meanings behind it. So, I mean, in this particular time period, that feels like that would be a pretty, like, radical notion, because I tend to, like, associate Victorians with, like, a very heavy sense of morality, that, like, everything needed to have, like, a moral purpose. Absolutely, yeah. Aestheticism is, like, more focused on artificial beauty, so, like, man-made beauty. Now, you would see this kind of reflected in Oscar Wilde's uh, depiction of himself with his attire. Uh, he would... He, you know what a dandy is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, dandies were aesthetes, mm-hmm. and Oscar Wilde was a dandy. Mm-hmm. Um, he had his room decorated with uh, peacock feathers, various flowers, and blue china. Mm-hmm. And um, he came up with this phrase. He was known for coming up with, like, particular phrases. Uh, But he had this one phrase that came about in college. He would say, I find it harder every day to live up to my blue china. (laughs) Yeah, Oscar Wilde's one of those guys who, like, is up there with, like, your Winston Churchills and so on, where you can, like, buy, like, entire little books of, like, their (laughs) quotes. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like at this point it's good to point out that um, aestheticism and the decadent movement, which was like its equivalent in France, both really liked the art movement that has been described as Orientalism. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that was also just like very popular at the time in Europe in that period. Absolutely, but the idea of like... So Orientalism is... Oh, the exotic East, Mm -hmm. and just kind of, like, fetishizing that a little bit. Victorian weeaboos. Exactly. Um, And aesthetes definitely hopped on that bandwagon and um, appropriated a lot of the aesthetics of that movement. Now, Orientalism as an art movement is all about appropriating, like, what Westerners saw as exotic in the East, Mm -hmm. being India, China, Japan, that sort of thing all kind of lumped together as the Far East. But you really see it in, like, that quote about the Blue China. Yes. Yeah. You can sort of draw, like, a straight line from Victorian Orientalism, which was kind of this 
admiration for the like, not just the look of the East and of Asia, but also like an obsession with like Chinese philosophy and like Buddhist, um, you know, uh, religious teachings and stuff like that. And you can draw a straight line from that to like, I feel people today who will talk to you about like their chakras and say namaste and be like a little (laughs) bit like embarrassing in terms of like, oh yes, we should abandon our Western practices because they, they're so much wiser, you know, in, in the East and stuff. Absolutely. Um, so Oscar Wilde would know generally the idea of like the ideas of like Buddhism or Taoism, but, uh, as far as like sitting down and reading the texts, I have, I can't speak to. Yeah. While at Magdalen College, he would meet um, one of the fathers of aestheticism, Walter Pater, in 1977. Mm-hmm. Now, Walter Pater, um, he, his version of aestheticism is more, I would say, radical in the sense that the what is important is the person's relationship and understanding of beauty above all else when it comes to looking at art. Like, mm-hmm. he's like, no, it's just what you see. Wilde would also study the other father father of aestheticism, John Ruskin, who was a bit more of a tempered version of aestheticism. Beauty is great, but should be complementary and almost like an ally to moral good. Hmm. So, so it's a bit more tempered. Mm-hmm. With such uh, a distinctive look and philosophy about things, Oscar Wilde was a bit of a known character at school. Um, he was actually temporarily expelled at one point. Um, For the crime of being Oscar Wilde, I'm sure. <laughs> he was late coming back from, like, winter vacation or something. <laughs> that was an excuse. They've been looking for a reason to get rid of him for years. Kind of. Um, upon graduating uh, with first-class honors, I might say, um, he joked that, quote, the Dons are astonished beyond words. With the bad boy doing so well in the end. Yeah, I imagine this, like, stuffy guy with, like, mutton chops and, like, a big (laughs) curled mustache and, like, a monocle being like, Oscar! Exactly. After graduating in 1878, Wilde began publishing book reviews and literary works like a collection of poems while he would go traveling in London, Paris, and the U.S. to deliver lectures. Um, Some of the things that he published uh, that are kind of notable, um, his very first play was Vera, or The Nihilists, in 1880. The collection of poems I mentioned is just called Poems, and was published in 1881. Then The Picture of Dorian Gray was published in 1890 in a periodical, and then um, as an independent novel in 91. He would do a couple of collections of fairy tales, such as A House of Pomegranates uh, in 1891. And then two of his more notable works are these two plays, uh, one titled Salome mm-hmm. in 1894 and The Importance of Being Earnest in 1895. Yeah. The picture of Dorian Gray was first published in the July 1890 issue of Lippincott's monthly magazine. So... Published all at once, it wasn't serialized. Correct. Huh. So you just, you were like, well, I, I wonder what I'll find in Lippicott's magazine this month. Uh, oh, oh, an, an Oscar Wilde novel. All right. 
Oh, is that... That's all there is? Oh. It's the whole <laughs> magazine. Martha, the whole magazine is just this one Oscar Wilde novel. Now, despite the magazine editor removing about 500 words to help the story avoid labels of indecency... <laughs> Which which five hundred? I don't. There weren't and and that. I'm sure. Um, many reviewers were still flabbergasted at the material. Uh, Monocles <laughs> popping off all over. Some calling for prosecution of Wilde for violating the laws of public morality just from writing the book. Martha, someone in this book isn't a good person. Exactly. Can you believe it? <laughs> so the following year. Wilde published the novel in full, um, though he did make some other revisions to kind of temper it. Mm -hmm. Um, And he added a preface that can kind of be taken as almost a a manifesto about the aestheticism movement. Okay. So it's in defense of art for art's sake and the rights of an artist to create regardless of morality. Though, honestly, I think Wilde intended it to be a bit of like aesthetic novel the preface was just to be like here's what i'm trying to do guys right yeah for everyone for for everyone in the back row yeah so in the novel dorian gray is getting his portrait done by artist basil hallward when lord henry watton comes to observe lord henry shares his hedonistic philosophies of beauty being the only aspect of life worth pursuing. During this conversation, Dorian kind of uh, goes like, oh, like, yeah, beauty, wouldn't it be great if this painting aged instead of me? Ha <laughs> ha. With Lord Henry now as an influence in his life, Dorian begins to explore sensu- sensuality. Mm-hmm. And by that, I'm not saying that in the novel, they're gay together. Um, sensuality is more... Feeling is the only thing to consider when pursuing experiences. So mm-hmm. it's not morality determining right. what you're wanting to go out and experience. Is, is this going to be a new experience? Great, let's do it. Right. This chocolate cake is far more important than giving to charity or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dorian meets Sybil Vane in a dingy bar performing Shakespeare. Okay. I didn't know people performed Shakespeare in dingy bars. Shakespeare has always been for dingy bars, Ben. (laughs) Are you kidding me? So they start dating, and they are soon engaged, despite Sybil's protective brother, who never actually meets Dorian, just hears about Sybil's quote-unquote Prince Charming. Uh, That's who uh, Sybil calls him, her Prince Charming. Mm Mm-hmm. So because he's now engaged, Dorian invites Lord Henry and Basil to a performance, and Sybil bombs. Um, embarrassed, he breaks it off with Sybil, um, because his friends think that he's just into her uh, good looks yeah, instead he, of her talent. Yeah, he's into her aesthetics. Exactly. Uh, heartbroken, Sybil kills herself. That escalated quickly, Jeff. <laughs> Dorian does regret, like, calling off the wedding and calling off the engagement and everything, um, and he feels doubly bad when he learns that Sybil's killed herself. This is when he notices that his portrait now seems to have kind of like an ugly sneer. Okay. And he realizes that the portrait is taking on the physical attributes of Dorian's own actions. Hmm. So he decides, you know, I'll lock up the portrait and just go hog-wild with experimenting with vices and a whole range of immoral practices. 
as an experiment to see what it'll do to the portrait. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. But also, like, the love of my life killed herself because I was a dick. Fuck it. Right. 18 years pass. <laughs> um, the portrait ages. Dorian does not. And Basil hears about some of the more radical things Dorian has been up to. So he goes in to check in on his friend. And at this point, Dorian's like, let me show you this portrait. And it's now just absolutely hideous. Upon seeing this, Basil is like, Dorian, you need to fucking A, stop, and B, get God into your life. You need to pray for salvation. Right. Um, instead, Dorian blames Basil for the situation. It, because he made portrait. the portrait. Yeah. And murders him. <laughs> okay, yeah. Then, uh, he blackmails another friend of his, a chemist, into destroying Basil's body. Um, kind of like, uh, Breaking Bad. Yeah. A little bit. Um, the chemist later kills himself over the guilt of this. So Dorian's kind of circling the drain, as it were, um, and he decides to go to an opium den. And it's here that he, uh, runs into and is confronted by Sybil's brother, James, who has been trying to track down Dorian, but only had the name Prince Charming to go off of, but finally he's found him. Dorian manages to get away from that encounter, but James is now stalking him. So Dorian's fearful, but during a hunting excursion, uh, James gets shot and killed. Well, so much for that plot line. Takes care of that. Meanwhile, Dorian has been courting this new sweetheart, Hetty Merton. It's at this point that Dorian declares to Lord Henry that I'm going to live righteously and morally for Hetty. Now that he's trying to be good... Dorian goes to check the portrait just to see what's going on. Because the last time he checked it, it was pretty damn ugly. Um, and the portrait just keeps getting uglier. Despite these, like, I'll be good. Mm. No, really. Dorian realizes that his motives for doing anything he's done has been out of vanity, curiosity of new experiences, and wanting to preserve almost like the beauty of the painting itself. So in a fit of, like, rage that... He has, like, no control over this situation to make this portrait, like, beautiful and make his soul beautiful, basically. He stabs the painting, but turns out he's actually stabbed himself. Yeah, I also have seen uh, Student of Prague, so. <laughs> and his body is found as, like, an old hideous man with the portrait back to normal. So it's pretty easy to, like, draw a line between, like, Dorian and Basil and Sir Henry with Oscar Wilde and his, like, two mentors, the, like, super into, like, hedonism one and the more, like, subdued one that you were talking about earlier, at least as far as, like, I can see. I think that's a little bit of what's going on. Wilde has actually said that um, there's a bit of himself in those three main characters. Mm. Basil is who he thinks he is. Lord Henry is who the world thinks he is. Mm -hmm. And Dorian is who he would like to be. So are you telling me that the novel The Picture of Dorian Gray is like a Victorian version of that like Facebook meme that's like, what my mom thinks I do, what my friends think <laughs> I do. You know that one? I, I think that's probably how the... The novel started. Okay. Um, but obviously, as he was writing it, it got a bit more complicated. I don't think when he was writing it, Oscar Wilde was like, yes, I want to be Dorian and stab myself. 
I want to be the immortal uh, murderer, Dorian Gray. (laughs) But I think you're right in that you can kind of see his two mentors in here, and you can kind of look at how he's grappling with the ideas of aestheticism. Mm -hmm. When he added the preface, like I said, um, he kind of tried to lay out what his goals were, and he paid particular attention to explaining what he considers the role of the artist in society, in that the artist is not there to instruct. Sure. Yeah, that's a fair position to take. Mm-hmm. He writes in there, and this is kind of taken as like a quote to explain aestheticism by and large. He wrote, There's no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well written or badly written. That's all. Hmm. I don't know if I'd go so far as to agree with that, but uh, I see what he's getting at. Um, the artist can use vice and virtues as materials. So just things to draw upon. Um, and if you go, uh, well, this character's immoral because of these things, and therefore you're advocating an immoral life, that's your fault. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that almost, because we've seen this like interesting rise lately in like literary and media criticism that has intersected with like social activism mm. um, online that has now like come to this weird spot where people can't reconcile like oh this character is bad with like oh this work is bad because we've almost become like very eager to say like oh this movie is bad because one of the you know actors in it was a bad person and so you shouldn't watch it and like it's oddly mirroring that kind of very victorian idea of like well, the lead character in this novel is is a villain, therefore the book itself is, is immoral, which is kind of a, a silly idea, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think at least where Wilde's coming from, and the aesthetes in particular, art and beauty, beautiful art, is not meant to have a purpose, a mm. use, basically. Its only reason to exist is to be experienced. And especially with the fact that there's, like, grotesque beauty, mm-hmm. and they admire that, it's the experience them- itself that they are going after. And I think that's why Wilde wrote Dorian Gray, and why it's kind of interesting how he's grappling with these ideas, because Dorian goes out to specifically experience, for lack of a better word, immoral experiences. Mm-hmm. And I'll just put a pin in that real quick. Think about that. We'll come back to it later. Okay. I mean, I think that, you know, as much as I agree with Wilde about, like, you can't declare a book immoral because it depicts immoral acts, I, you know, on the other hand, going to the other extreme of, like, the aesthetes being like, oh, you know, there is no morality in art. Art only exists to exist. I wouldn't agree with something going that far because art is a form of communication and you are communicating something, and there is a message there, and you have a responsibility to, like, control that message and be saying something. And I often find people who say, like, oh, there is no message. Like, my video game has no politics in it or whatever is, like, a way to try and, like, dodge criticism rather than, like, a valid point of view. Um, So I, I, I wouldn't necessarily go that far, and I find the entire idea of, like, oh, my art isn't saying anything, it's just here for you to experience it to be kind of a little bit of a, like, a little bit of a masturbatory (laughs) idea, you know? Yeah. Well, all of the aesthetes were rich white men. Right. 
in a time where it was like, I mean, it's always been a good time to be a rich white man, Mm -hmm. but in Victorian England, especially. Yeah, for sure. Now, perhaps because of the difficulty he faced in producing a novel and having it be, like, censored, basically, and also of the backlash that he had of, like, people not fully understanding what he was trying to get at, Mm -hmm. Wilde decided to focus on producing dramatic plays for his main output. So in the opening, you described Wilde as a novelist. Picture of Dorian Gray is his only novel. His main output was plays. I feel like the advantage with that is, like, if someone doesn't understand your work, right? Like, the thing about Dorian Gray is that he's, like, a shitty dude for, like, an entire book, and then, you know, he dies at the end or whatever, and you realize, oh, the moral all along was don't be a shitty dude. But you have to get to the end of the book, right? Otherwise, a play, you're kind of there for two hours, right, and you're, then you're, done. you're You're stuck there. You yeah. have to see that the ending, like, expresses the moral, instead of just getting five chapters into Dorian Gray and being like, fuck this shit, and throwing it away. <laughs> for sure. So his two most famous plays are Salome from 1891 and Importance of Being Earnest in 1895. For some time now, Wilde had been in a relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas. Okay. Um, which Douglas's father, the Marquess of Queensbury, disapproved. So in 1895, Wilde decided to be a butthead and charged the Marquess with criminal libel for saying... That Wilde was gay. Which he was. Yeah, so... Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait. So, (laughs) the key bit of context here being that being gay was illegal. Yes. So, nobody's talking about how you're gay, right? Nobody's talking about this crime you're doing. Let's, let's, let's turn this into a 2019 thing. Well, it's thing. like a well-known, like, people know. People that know. That Wilde and Douglas are together. Right. But let's, let's say it's 2019, and instead of being gay, we're talking about, like, murdering people. Like, I'm a murderer, but, like, nobody's arrested me yet, right? Oh. And then it's like, I'm going to sue this guy over here for saying I'm a murderer. Yep. And then everyone's going to look at you and be like, but, wait, are you? <laughs> like, no one was talking about it, yeah. Oscar. Like, And it was just, it was like a well-known open secret, right. basically. But as soon as Wilde brought the issue up in court... Um, yeah, then this guy has to prove Oscar Wilde is gay, because yeah. then that makes him innocent of the libel charge. Exactly. And if he can prove that, then that means he's guilty of a crime. That's exactly what happened. So the criminal libel trial unearthed evidence of Wilde's homosexuality, and he was then tried for gross indecency and sodomy. Oscar, you idiot. Yeah. He would not have died so young... If he had not done this. Yeah, I always knew that he was tried for, like, being gay and, like, convicted and all of this stuff. But, like, I'd always thought of that in a very, like, I feel sorry for the guy. Like, oh, the injustices of the time kind of way. But hearing this, like, information now, it's like, you you stepped right into this one, you idiot. Yeah, so with this um, trial over, like, indecency or whatever, Wilde was sentenced to two years hard labor, which was the maximum sentence. Wilde was jailed from 1895 to 97. During this time, he would write um, this letter titled De Profundis, um, which is Latin for Out of the Depths, but also a reference to Psalm 130. Um, And what's interesting is this is a letter that's renouncing a lot of aestheticism and sensualism, these beliefs that he had had for most of his life. Mm. Upon release... 
Wilde left for France immediately in kind of a, a self-imposed exile. Yeah. Uh, he, and he would write The Ballad of Reading Jail, and it's um, kind of a collection of poems about jail mm-hmm. and jail life. His health had declined while he was in prison, mainly because, um, like, it's hard labor. And a lot of the philosophies about prison at the time were, like, hard labor, um, a hard bed, like... It was punitive, not rehabilitative. Exactly. Um, so at one point, he um, actually collapsed from exhaustion and ill health. When that happened, he ruptured his right eardrum, and that injury, while it healed while he was in prison, um, it would eventually lead to uh, him getting sick and dying. Mm. Um, after he got out of prison, um, he lived in poverty, despite publishing some well-received um, poems and such in newspapers. In uh, the fall of 1900, he contracted meningitis, which um, doctors have tied to, like, his past injury in prison. Um, this quickly developed into cerebral meningitis, and he passed away from it. How old was he? 46. Okay. So let's go back to Dorian Gray. Mm. Um, Dorian, at the end, like, destroys this painting, and doing so destroys himself, and it's almost as if, like, Dorian, who is, who Wilde means to be, like, who he wants to be, is attacking these aesthetic beliefs. Right. Um, how it's led to him where he is, and in a way, that's what he did in the letter, De Profundis, and kind of in the last few years of his life. Right, it's like weirdly self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. Yeah. Despite it being his only novel, Wilde is most remembered by a picture of Dorian Gray, likely because of its reputation as a kind of manifesto. Now, this 1945 film we are watching is the eighth adaptation so far. The eighth film adaptation, yeah. The eighth adaptation. Any adaptations before this were all films. Oh, there wasn't like a play version no, of this? No, any plays came uh, after this film. Oh, I'm super surprised to hear that. Same. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so, the films. Oh, I have this too. Let's let's compare notes. Okay. The first was, 19 ten, was in 1910, a Danish silent film directed by Axel Strom. Mm-hmm. Then in 1913, there was an American silent film adaptation directed by Philip Smalley. And written by Loris Weber, the editor who kind of like saved the 1925 Phantom of the Opera. Oh, sweet. Mm-hmm. In 1915, there was another American adaptation, this time directed by Eugene Moore. It was two reels long. Oh, shit, like 22 minutes long? Yeah. Nice. Then in 1915, we had the Russian adaptation directed by Sverlod... Merhold and Mikhail Doronin in 1916 was the UK adaptation directed by Fred Durant and starring a man named Henry Victor as Dorian, who we last saw as Hercules in Freaks. And that version is four reels long. <laughs> in this UK adaptation, um, Satan is used as like the magic element that makes the portrait magical. Sure. In 1917 was a German adaptation directed by Richard Oswald, mm-hmm. who was the director of the 1932 Unheimliche Geschichten. Mm-hmm. And was involved in a lot of different 
German Expressionist silent films all throughout that period. Mm -hmm. In 1918 was the Hungarian adaptation that starred Bela Lugosi as Lord Henry Mm -hmm. and was directed by Alfred Diusi. And then we come to 1945. So this version, the 1945 version, is the first sound feature-length version. And to, like, the best of my knowledge, all of these other previous versions are, like, A, like, most of them aren't extant. Like, you can't watch them really anywhere. And B are, like, you know, like the early Jekyll and Hydes we looked at that were, like, really short, um, really condensed. So if you're wondering, like, why we haven't looked at any of these previous... Dorian Gray's, it's like, well, you know, I know the German one, for instance, is lost. I don't think the Hungarian one exists anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, like, these other early ones are, you know, really just short little movies. Um, This is really the first, you know, full-blown movie adaptation, which on the one hand is kind of surprising because it's this, like, piece of classic literature and, like, when the American horror genre was first really beginning, doing classic literature adaptations was like a go-to maneuver Mm -hmm. to gain respectability. On the other hand, I suspect that like a lot of the moral censorship outrage concerns over Dorian Gray and over Oscar Wilde made it kind of a like, oh, do we want to go here thing, especially, you know, as we got into the code era, right? Yeah, I mean, like, there's two American adaptations in, like, the 1910s. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were being made. But I mean... Like, that's the same time as the Frankenstein ones. But you're totally right that, like, it's easier to point to Jekyll and Hyde or Frankenstein and be like, good, bad. Mm-hmm. Whereas this film, it's very uh, murky, ironically. Well, and also with, like, the stuff being done in the 1910s, you know, when you look at, like, the Edison Frankenstein, for instance, the movies were so short that you had to simplify the story to such a degree that you could bypass a lot of that stuff. And the thing about Dorian Gray is I feel like, you know, one of the reasons why Dorian Gray remains as well-known as it does today is because it's got a really simple, easy-to-grasp high concept, right? Even if you don't know all the stuff about aestheticism and the morality and whatever, it's just... This dude doesn't age, but his portrait does. Like, that's a really easy idea to grasp onto, right? Yeah. So, this version of Dorian Gray, speaking of using literary adaptation to add respectability to your movie, this version comes to us from Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Yeah. And the last attempt that Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer had at horror was 1941's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I think that's significant when we think about kind of what formulas in terms of the storytelling this version of Dorian Gray uses and compare this to the 41 Jekyll and Hyde and also the movie that movie was trying to be, which is the 31 Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. But similarly here, the idea was to create a glamorous prestige picture that would enable MGM to sort of play in the horror... Uh, Milieu? Yeah, without having to really dirty themselves with the kind of B-movie, schlocky reputation that horror as a genre had by this point. Yeah, I think going for literary adaptation Mm -hmm. is the best way to do that, for sure. And what's interesting is that, like, 
all the other studios had moved beyond that. Like, literary adaptation was this common opening gambit that we saw, but everybody else is now down in the muck making, you know, House of Frankenstein and shit. (laughs) But MGM has been really tepid about the whole horror thing going all the way back to the 30s, and so, you know, like, this is the first time they've done horror in four years, so they're still playing it that way, and I think that makes sense given that their entire studio image was based around kind of glamour and prestige, right? Mm-hmm. So the film's producer was Pandro S. Berman, who was born in 1905 in Pittsburgh to a Jewish family. His father was Henry Berman, the general manager of Universal Pictures under the Lemley family. In 1930, Pandro, often called Pan, was hired as a film editor for RKO, rising to assistant producer and then full producer by 1931. Berman worked under David O. Selznick's tenure at RKO and shepherded films like the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers musicals of Human Bondage and the 1939 Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, through to completion. Would he have been working with Selznick with any overlap with Luton, Val Luton? Yeah, so they would have all been working together at the same time. Interesting. That's cool. Now, after the change of management at RKO that sort of saw the fall of Orson Welles and the rise of Val Luton, Berman jumped ship to MGM producing films there like National Velvet, Father of the Bride, Blackboard Jungle, Jailhouse Rock, and many others, surviving at MGM all the way till 1963. Yeah, like Father of the Bride, like that's a big movie. He retired as an independent producer in 1970 and passed away at age 91 in 1996. The film's director, Albert Lewin, uh, was also Jewish. He also wrote the screenplay... Uh, to the film, adapting Oscar Wilde's novel. He was born in Brooklyn in 1894 and raised in Newark. He taught English at the University of Missouri and was a drama and film critic for the Jewish Tribune. He was hired as a script reader by Samuel Goldwyn and moved out to Hollywood in the early 1920s. He then worked as a script supervisor for King Vidor and Victor Hostrom, and in 1924 he was made a screenwriter at MGM. So he's been with MGM, like, since very, very early, if he was hired by one of the Goldwins. Yes. By the late 1920s, he was made the head of the studio's story department, and he was producer Irving Thalberg's right-hand man. He became a full producer on films like Red-Headed Woman and Mutiny on the Bounty, and in 1942, he transitioned to directing. He wrote all of his own films and produced several of them. His first film was The Moon and Sixpence in 1942. Picture of Dorian Gray was his second. Lewin's films are often noted by critics for their literary pretensions and cultural themes. Cultural themes as in? Like an attempt to be high culture. Okay, yeah, because I wasn't sure if, like... Do, do they mean, like, comment on current society? No, no, they, they meant, like, he, like, his films often attempted to be part of high culture. Okay. The film is narrated by our old friend Sir Cedric Hardwick. Oh. And has a pretty remarkable cast across the board. The headlining actor is George Sanders in the role of Lord Henry Wotton a role that Basil Rathbone campaigned for to no avail. (laughs) We haven't actually seen George Sanders in anything for the show yet, but you'd be forgiven for thinking that we had since he's Val Luton favorite Tom Conway's younger brother. Mm -hmm. 
He was born in 1906 in St. Petersburg to German parents and moved to England with his family at the outbreak of the Russian Revolution in 1917. After attending technical college, managing a tobacco plantation, and working in advertising, he took an acting career after the ad firm's company secretary, aspiring actress Greer Garson, suggested it to him. Garson later became the number one U.S. box office draw from 1942 to 1946. Wow. Through the 1930s, Sanders appeared on stage in the U.S. and the U.K. and featured in small roles in British films. But his big break came when 20th Century Fox cast him as the villain in 1936's Lloyds of London opposite Tyrone Power. He played villains at Fox for most of the rest of the decade until he was loaned to RKO in 1939. You see... Lewis Haywood had dropped out of playing the title character in the sequel to The Saint in New York, so Sanders took over the part for The Saint Strikes Back. He appeared in four more Saint pictures over the next two years, as well as two Hitchcock pictures and many other films. RKO's Saint series ended after a rights dispute with the author of the original novels, and so the studio created the similar yet legally distinct character of The Falcon uh, for Sanders to play. The Falcon. He appeared in three Falcon pictures before tiring of the series and handing it over to his brother Tom Conway in 1942's The Falcon's Brother, in which the Falcon is killed and replaced by his brother. <laughs> His first leading role in an A picture came with 1942's The Moon and Sixpence, directed by Albert Lewin, leading to Lewin casting Sanders in Dorian Gray, despite all of Basil Rathbone's efforts. Later notable George Sanders pictures include The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, All About Eve, and of course the voice of Cher Khan in The Jungle Book, and the first live-action portrayal of Mr. Freeze on the Batman television series. <laughs> The lead role of Dorian went to 27-year-old Hurd Hatfield. Born William Ruckard Hurd Hatfield in New York City to New York Deputy Attorney General William Henry Hatfield, he was educated at Columbia University before moving to London to become a theater actor. His film debut was 1944's Dragon Seed as Lao Santan. Oh my god. Picture of Dorian. This is like the third time Dragon Seeds come up in these. Oh my god. Picture of Dorian Gray was his second film role. Oh no. He would receive widespread acclaim for the performance, but he felt that the role typecast him and that the strange, dark, bisexual nature of the part made casting directors unable to see him as someone who could be light or humorous. Uh, yet, he was too young and handsome for character roles. So, he would continue to appear in film and on stage, but generally felt that Dorian Gray had ruined his chance for his career to really take off. Introduced to Ireland by friend and co-star Angela Lansbury, he retired to County Cork in the early 1970s, though he did make three guest appearances on Lansbury's television series, Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> He passed away peacefully at age 81 on St. Stephen's Day, 1998. Third build in the cast, playing the role of Gladys Hallward, is actress Donna Reed. Born in 1921 in Denison, Iowa as Donna Bell Mullinger, she attended Los Angeles City College intending to become a teacher. She appeared in various school stage plays, but had no intention to become an actress until she was screen tested and signed to a contract by MGM. The studio changed her name to Donna Reed due to anti-German sentiment during World War II, though she never liked the name. Her film debut was in 1941, 
and she was well established as a popular young starlet by the time she was cast in Dorian Gray. In 1946, she appeared as Mary Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, perhaps the role she is most remembered for today. She won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for her role in From Here to Eternity in 1953. And from 1958 to 1966, she starred on The Donna Reed Show for ABC, a family sitcom. She passed away from pancreatic cancer in 1986. Mm-hmm. Probably the most recognizable name to a modern viewer in the cast of this film is Angela Lansbury. Now, Dame Angela Lansbury. She was born in London in 1925 to Irish actress Moina McGill, who appears in the film as a duchess, (laughs) and English communist Edgar Lansbury. When her father died when she was only nine years old, she retreated into playing characters as a coping mechanism. She began studying acting in 1940, but when the Blitz broke out, Lansbury's mother moved her and her two brothers to the United States. There, she got a scholarship to study drama, graduating in 1942. When her mother got a part in a Canadian touring production of Tonight at 8.30, Lansbury headed to Canada also, getting her first gig singing in a Montreal nightclub, claiming that she was 19 years old when she was only 16. Oh, oh no. When her mother moved to L.A., Lansbury followed, becoming friends with the city's underground gay scene, uh, through which she met Aldous Huxley. At a Hollywood party, she met writer John Van Druten, who was then working on the 1944 remake of Gaslight, starring Ingrid Bergman. He thought that Lansbury would be perfect for the role of the Cockney maid in the movie, so she was cast as it, signed to a $500 a week seven-year MGM contract, and then nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Academy Award for her appearance in the film. Her second film was 1944's National Velvet, produced by Pan Berman, which led to her role at age 20 in The Picture of Dorian Gray, which would earn her her second Best Supporting Actress nomination at the Academy Awards. Wow. She appeared in 11 more MGM films, but she was unhappy with the roles she was getting with the studio and terminated her contract in 1952. Her career hit a low through the 1950s until a series of Broadway appearances in the late 50s and early 60s restored her fortunes, leading to her critically acclaimed role in 1962's The Manchurian Candidate and her third Best Supporting Actress nomination. In 1966, she got the title role in the Broadway musical Mame. At 41 years old, it was her first starring role, and she had to campaign hard to get it. The part won Lansbury a cult gay following, for which Lansbury was most appreciative. Many of her best friends were gay, including her first husband. (laughs) She was hugely acclaimed in the part and won a Tony Award for Best Leading Actress in a Musical. One of her biggest career disappointments was when Lucille Ball was given the role for the film adaptation. In the 1970s, Lansbury moved her family to County Cork in Ireland to get away from the celebrity scene in L.A. and New York. She returned to London's West End and won her third Tony Award for her role in Gypsy. In 1979, she originated the role of Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, earning her fourth Tony. In 1980, she appeared as Miss Marple in the Agatha Christie adaptation The Mirror Cracked, and in 1982, she voiced the witch Mommy Fortuna in The Last Unicorn. Global fame finally found Angela Lansbury in 1984 with the role of Jessica Fletcher on the detective series Murder, She Wrote on CBS. 
Unusual for an American series, Fletcher was an older, single woman protagonist, and the show's emphasis was on the mystery, not the violence. The show ran until 1996, and Lansbury was the executive producer for the final four seasons. Uh, Apparently, like, what basically sealed the show finally ending was that CBS put it on opposite this new show on NBC called Friends. Oh, no. In 1991, she voiced Mrs. Potts in Disney's Beauty and the Beast, for which she sang the Oscar-winning title song. She was knighted in 2014, and in 2018, she appeared in Mary Poppins Returns. She is 93 years old. Peter Lawford appears in the film in the role of David Stone, a character created to allow for that essential Hayes Code-approved happy ending. Because you better believe that, like, one of Albert Lewin's big challenges writing the script for this movie was writing a version that would get past the Breen office. Yeah. Born in London in 1923, Peter Lawford was the son of Lieutenant General Sir Sidney Turing Barlow Lawford and Mary Somerville Bunny, who was the <laughs> who was the wife of Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Ernst von Ehlen, one of Sir Sidney's officers. Oh wait. Sir Sidney, for his part, was married to one Muriel Williams. So Peter's birth resulted in a double divorce, and his parents were married when he was a year old. <laughs> Whoops. Peter's childhood was spent in France, and he was educated by tutors and governesses. At age 14, he was in an accident where his right arm went through a glass door, giving him irreversible nerve damage that compromised the use of that arm. Because of this, he could not enter the armed forces as planned by his parents, and so he pursued an acting career instead, which caused him to be disinherited by one of his aunts who was a member of the British aristocracy. When the war broke out in 1939, he and his parents were in Florida and found themselves stranded as their money was in Britain. Peter took a job parking cars until he had enough money to get out to Hollywood. There, he took work as a theater usher until he could find acting work. Now, as a young and handsome Brit, he actually found himself soon in demand for bit parts in war movies and played young military men of all kinds in dozens of films before finally landing a contract at MGM in 1943. At the time of Dorian Gray, he was still an up-and-comer. His first lead role would be later in 1945 in Son of Lassie. With actors like Clark Gable and Jimmy Stewart away in the war, Lawford's star rose at MGM as a romantic lead. And in 1946, he won an audience poll as the most popular actor in Hollywood. He would continue acting in a multitude of films until MGM released him from his contract in the early 1950s. In 1954, he married Patricia Kennedy, sister of future U.S. President John F. Kennedy. Yeah. In 1959, he became part of the Rat Pack. Frank Sinatra's group of Las Vegas-based friends, entertainers, womanizers, alcoholics, which consisted of Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Joey Bishop, and Peter Lawford. Mm-hmm. By 1961, Lawford had begun producing films as well, though he continued to appear regularly in films and on television until 1983. Lawford and Patricia Kennedy divorced in 1966, and Lawford passed away in 1989 at age 61 from cardiac arrest. Of course, with the central object of the story being a painting, a painting would have to be created for the movie. 
Director Albert Lewin was a fan of painter Ivan Le Lorraine Albright and commissioned him to create the portrait of the ravaged Dorian for $75,000. Albright was a magical realism painter known for self-portraits and character studies. He and his twin brother Malvin were born in 1897 in Chicago, the sons of landscape artist Adam Emery Albright. Both attended the Art Institute of Chicago, Ivan for painting and Malvin for sculpture. Ivan had his first art show in 1930. His technique was time-consuming. It involved hundreds of detailed preliminary drawings and painting with multiple little tiny brushes and the use of a violent and lurid color palette. His speciality was the detailed depiction of the deterioration of people and objects. Perfect for this. The detail in his paintings meant they often took years to complete, which led him to charge much more than comparable artists for his work. His typical themes include life and death, the spiritual versus the physical, and the effects of time. Some of his well-known works include Poor Room, There Is No Time, No End, No Today, No Yesterday, No Tomorrow, Only the Forever, and Forever and Ever Without End. <laughs> And man created God in his own image. That which I should have done I did not do. Into the world there came a soul called Ida. And of course, the picture of Dorian Gray. <laughs> Albright began work on the painting in 1943. And it took him two years to complete. The picture of the untainted Dorian was by Henrik Medina, a Portuguese painter, and it's called The Portrait of Herd Hatfield as Dorian Gray. To depict the deterioration, Albright then painted over top Medina's painting. Today, Albright's painting is at the Art Institute of Chicago, while Medina's painting is part of a private collection. Fun fact, Ivan Albright is the father-in-law of Clinton-era Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Notably, while the picture of Dorian Gray is a black-and-white film, it features four Technicolor inserts, all shots of the portrait in various states of decay. The cinematographer for the film was Harry Stradling Sr., the nephew of cinematographer Walter Stradling, father of cinematographer Harry Stradling Jr., and godfather of cinematographer Jerry Finnerman. Some of Stradling Sr.'s other films include 1938's Pygmalion, 1939's Jamaica Inn, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, 1941's Mr. and Mrs. Smith, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, 1941's The Devil and Miss Jones, 1941's Suspicion, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire, oh. 1964's My Fair Lady, and 1968's Funny Girl, 1969's Hello Dolly, 1970s On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, and 1970s The Owl and the Pussycat, all starring Barbara Streisand. Wow. The task of reproducing Albright's decayed version of Dorian Gray in reality fell to the more than capable Jack Dawn, the head of MGM's makeup department for almost 20 years through the golden age of Hollywood. It would be redundant to list all of his films because it would be... All of the MGM films of that time, yeah. But some uh, big names that you might recall would include 1935's Mark of the Vampire, 1939's The Wizard of Oz, 1941's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, in addition to over 200 others. The film's score 
was composed by elite MGM contract composer Herbert Stothert, who composed over 100 scores from 1927 to 1949, all at MGM, including A Night at the Opera in 1935, Mutiny on the Bounty in 1935, The Wizard of Oz in 1939, for which he won an Oscar, Mrs. Miniver in 1942. However, he is probably best known today for the song I Want to Be Loved by You, which has become something of a standard. I want to be loved by you, just you, nobody else but you. I want to be loved by you, alone. The film's editor is Ferris Webster, one of the all-time great film editors. Webster's credits include Father of the Bride, 1950, Blackboard Jungle, 1955, Forbidden Planet, 1956. Oh, shit. Cat in the Hot Tin Roof, 1958, The Magnificent Seven, 1960, The Manchurian Candidate, 1962, The Great Escape, 1963, Seven Days in May, 1964, Seconds, 1966, Oh, shit, son. Ice Station Zebra, 1968, High Plains Drifter, 1973, Magnum Force, 1973, The Outlaw Josie Wales, 1976, and The Enforcer, 1976. Is there anyone... Okay. Is there anyone in this movie who is a nobody? <laughs> I mean, Heard Hatfield when they cast him. No, I mean, like, was forever a nobody. Uh, actually, the guy who plays um, Sybil Vance's brother, Jack Vance, he's basically just Jack Vance in this movie. Okay, there we go. Awesome. So anyone who you didn't have to do hours upon hours of research <laughs> yeah, for. Yeah, that guy. The picture of Dorian Gray cost MGM $1.9 million dollars. And it was released on March 1st, 1945, to critical acclaim and almost $3 million at the box office. Let's just hit pause real quick. You say $1.9 million. Mm-hmm. Now, we live in a world where that's like the cost of an independent film mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Not a prestige picture, not a Marvel movie. So, like, can we compare, like, that $1.9 million to, like, like what was the 41 Jekyll and Hyde? Uh, let's, let's look it up. Let's Wikipedia it really quick. Comparable. 1.14 million. Yeah, what was the, um, Phantom of the Opera with, uh, Claude Rains? Because I believe we cited that as being the most expensive horror movie we had watched up to that point. I'm going to guess it cost more because it was all Technicolor. Mm, but it was reusing those sets. 1.75 million. And this is 1.9. 1.9. Holy shit, son, it broke a record for us. Yeah, so this is the most expensive horror movie we've seen up to this point then. Um, it made $2,975,000 at the box office, so nearly $3 million, um, which is good. It made money, but that's not as high as the studio would want. You generally want to be making like at least double back, right? Like if you've spent nearly two, then you want to make nearly four, not nearly three. Yeah. But it was nominated for three Academy Awards. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Angela Lansbury was nominated. It was also nominated for Best Art Direction, and it also won for Best Cinematography. Mm. Today, the film is available on DVD, Blu-ray, as well as on Google Play, YouTube, and the Microsoft Video Store. Great. So, folks, if you want to watch along, you can find it on our YouTube playlist. You can find that playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. 
You're going to hear a brief musical break, and when we come back, we will discuss The Picture of Dorian Gray from 1945, directed by Albert Lewin. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Picture of Dorian Gray from 1945, directed by Albert Lewin. Ben, what did you think? I mean, as I said in the intro, we've seen this movie before. I, I, you know, enjoyed watching it again. It's always sort of interesting because there are parts of this movie that, like, loom larger than others in my memory. Sure. And so it's like, oh yeah, I forgot how much of this was you know, people at dinner parties or whatever, right? But it's it's a very good movie. It is clearly a very expensive movie. <laughs> um, you know, it's nice when you can be like, oh yes, they actually spent money on this. Yeah, it's a it's a, a nice treat. Yeah. So the film hewed pretty closely to the novel, mm-hmm. um, with the exception of a couple of like additional characters and some, like, shifts in, like, precise detail. Yeah. Uh, But why don't you take us through the movie version of the story, and we can maybe highlight where it's different. Absolutely. So, the film opens with Dorian Gray, who is very young and naive. He's about 22. He's posing for a portrait with artist Basil Hallward, um, and he meets Lord Henry Wotton. Now, what's interesting is Basil and Lord Henry are kind of set up as almost a little bit of a an angel and a devil mm-hmm. on Dorian's shoulder, with yes. Lord Henry as the devil, definitely. We are actually introduced to Basil and Lord, Lord Henry first, and then Dorian comes in once we get an idea of, like, the two philosophies going on here of, like, be nice and good and fuck people. Right. I just want to experience things, because I'm rich. Fuck people in, like, every meaning that phrase could take. Like, literally, metaphorically. And be a real, um, cad about it. Mm -hmm. Though there's always kind of an implication that, like, Lord Henry's a little bit more bark than bite in terms of, like, his philosophy. He enjoys saying things that, like, scandalize people, but, like, it's, it's sort of questionable, ambiguous in the movie, whether he actually is, like, living out his own philosophy, really. Yes. Um, this philosophy, he actually shares with Dorian during the sitting, and he encourages Dorian to experience everything he can while he's young, because with youth and beauty comes everything, and everything after that is shit. Yeah, the, you know, that go bungee jumping and binge drinking and have orgies when you're young because you try to do that when you're 60 and you're just going to die of a heart attack. So, like, (laughs) I get where he's coming from. And Dorian is like, that makes sense. Okay, uh uh-huh. Sure. Now, he is getting his portrait done and he's posing with this random statue that Basil has in his studio. And this cat statue is described as one of these 
73rd Gods of Egypt, not a representation of. Yeah, the, the cat is literally one of the gods of Egypt. Um, so in doing the painting with this cat, Dorian says, yes, I'd give my soul to remain the same age and have the painting age. And Lord Henry goes, careful, that cat's a god, it might grant you a wish. Mm-hmm. And Dorian's like, yeah, I'd give my soul for this shit. Mm-hmm. With the way that the camera moves on the cat, it is heavily implied that the cat actually does this. Yeah, the but, Im- the implication is that, like, an Egyptian cat god, like, that Bast has, like, granted door that that is the, like, supernatural fuel for the rest of the movie. Yes. Speaking of Orientalism. Exactly. Um, so after the painting's done and this meeting with Lord Henry, Dorian decides to seek out new experiences, like new food and seeing new bars and other, like, restaurants in town. You know the song Common People? He does the song Common People. Exactly. He goes, he goes poverty touring. And it's in one of these bars called uh, The Two Turtles that he meets Sybil Vane, um, who sings the song Little Yellow Bird. One of those examples of, like, if people listened to the songs that they sang... In the movies they were in, they would understand the plots of their own lives better. (laughs) So Dorian comes back again and again because he's just so enamored with Sybil's voice, and they get closer, and they eventually fall in love. Um, This is all despite Sybil's brother's disapproval, who um, only hears uh, Sybil refer to Dorian as Sir Tristan in reference to one of Arthur's knights. Mm -hmm. Because... Listen, James, my brother, there's no way that um, this gentleman could be bad. I feel no evil in him. He's like Sir Tristan, one of Arthur's knights. Mm -hmm. That's where it all comes from. He looks innocent, therefore he is. To be fair, at this point, he kind of is innocent. Like I mentioned in the novel synopsis, Dorian brings Basil and Lord Henry to see Sybil and say, like, hey, look, we're going to be married, like, what do you think of her? So on and so forth. Um, Now, in the film, Sybil doesn't bomb. She actually sings quite well, and Basil really likes Sybil, thinks that it's a great fit, Um, despite the, like, class difference. But, like, you're in love, okay, whatever. You're young. Lord Henry does not think this is a good idea, because you're young. You shouldn't get tied down. Yeah. Vaudeville actresses are for fucking, not for Marion. Yeah, that's basically what he says. Uh, So he's like, "Ah, here's how you test if she's truly worthy of you. Invite her over to perhaps see the painting that Basil has has done of you. And as she goes to leave, ask if she will stay the night. If she leaves, act cold, but then apologize the next day, and you know she's good to marry. Yeah. Because she's pure. Right. But if she stays... Then she's a tramp. Have some fun, but then call it off. Yeah. Because uh, Lord Henry's a dick. Sidebar, yeah. if you are ever in a relationship, ever, never do tests. No. Like this kind of like, I'm going to do this thing as like a test of the other person. Yes. is That is 100% always a terrible idea. Yeah. Don't take, like, Shakespeare for relationship advice. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially don't take Oscar Wilde for (laughs) relationship advice. Sure. 
Dorian does this, and Sybil goes to leave, and he's like, I should have expected this of you, and is all cold, and then plays the song that he, like, plays for her as, like, a sign of his love, which is Chopin's Prelude. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she comes back and stays the night. And the next day, Dorian writes a terrible letter that basically calls off the engagement and says that she, like, doesn't fit his ideal of her, and here's some cash for your trouble. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I wasn't, I was in love with my idea of how pure you are, and now you've ruined that idea. It's this, like, perfect fucking misogynistic bullshit that I can't stand of, like, this double standard Mm. of, like, stay and fuck me, and then if you do... Now you've ruined yourself for me, and I never want to see you again. And if you don't, you're frigid. Right. Yeah. So after he writes this letter, and we see, like, Sybil read it, and it's clearly, like, heartbreaking, um, Dorian notices something strange with his painting, and it seems to have a cruel sneer on the painted Dorian's face. And this is when he seems to, like, put two and two together that, like, oh, I did something bad, but the painting is taking on a representation of that, therefore I can do anything, and the painting will take it. But he does feel guilty about what he's done to Sybil, so he's decided, ah, no, I'll write her and we'll get back together and it'll be fine. He also just doesn't want the painting to look bad. Like, he's like, you know, my friends are going to come over and want to see the painting, so, like, I have to, like fix how the painting looks, so I'll be good. I'll be a good boy. And by being a good boy, I will go to Sybil and ask for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's too late, as Lord Henry comes in um, that morning uh, to say, hey, listen, sorry, Sybil's dead. Want to come to the opera tonight? It'll be great. I feel like what he's doing here is he's trying to, like, he's trying to get Dorian over it as like quickly as possible or like soften the blow or like you know the thing about Lord Henry is not that necessarily he's a bad friend it's that he's a bad person but like I get what he's sort of trying to do it just comes off callous because Lord Henry's entire deal is a performance of callousness yes and cynicism Mm -hmm. but um yeah, she definitely killed herself. Yes. Like, the movie does not really say that, but it gets as close as it can. Absolutely. So Dorian decides to hide the painting away in his schoolroom, which is at the top of the stairs, um, and decides to take on an indifferent attitude to life to kind of mimic Lord Henry's callousness. Mm-hmm. I'll experience things and then move on. Eighteen years later... Yeah. Uh, and Dorian still looks 22 years old. Now, we do get, like, a bit of a montage with narration that we've kind of had every now and then throughout the film that kind of describes things as, like, Dorian getting up to debauchery. But given the people's reactions to Dorian that we see and a bit of the narration, it's clear that it's not just debauchery, um, that it, that phrase is actually too light of a word, Dorian has committed some pretty hateful deeds. There's implied sexual assault against women, sex, drugs, rock and roll. 
introducing others to this lifestyle and then blackmailing them for taking part. Um, this is kind of the stuff that he gets up to over the last 18 years. It kind of has this, like, um, I don't I don't really have, like, a better person to invoke here, but, I mean, I there's dozens. But, like, kind of a Harvey Weinstein thing of, like, there are certain circles of people who know that Dorian Gray is no good, and there are other circles of people that he can, like, still move in and be this respectable guy, and there are people who are like, oh, there's no way Dorian Gray could be as bad as the stories people tell about him kind of thing, and, like, friends who will defend him and other people who kind of know the truth, um, that kind of thing, where, like, yes, he gets up to all this stuff, but it's all, like, still very secret and this in this, like, sort of secret other life. But there's also, like, a lot of rumors about that circling around him at all the time. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a great example um, to name with Harvey Weinstein. Um, and kind of the main piece of evidence of these rumors not being true is because Dorian doesn't look evil. Right. How could he... <laughs> be evil? How could he do these terrible things? Look at him. I mean, you always have to remember, and I mean, this is still kind of true today, but especially in Victorian times, that the idea was, like, evil was written on your face, that, like, ugly people were evil and and beautiful people were good because the crimes you commit, like, show on your face. Now, on the one hand, there is kind of, like, a literal idea to this that I can kind of see, which is, like, if Dorian was an alcoholic or, like, a drug addict or whatever, like, you know, you would see... There are there are telltale signs where you can, like, look at someone and be like, oh, you've had a rough life. Like, nobody looks at Keith Richards and is like, ah, the perfect picture of innocent youth, you know? So I, I can kind of see what they're trying to say. Like, oh, he has, like, no wrinkles. He has none, you know, none of this. So, like, he must just be, you know, eating three square meals a day and having 100% morality. <laughs> Always choosing Paragon. Right. When when the option comes up. Yeah, so he doesn't get those glowy scars across his exactly, face. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly it. Like, you still see this, like, idea in today's media. Mm-hmm. Even in Fable, mm-hmm. one of the first video games to have you choose between, like, good or bad, there was no, like, middle ground. If you were going evil, like, it fucking showed on your face, man. Yeah. You see it in Star Wars. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's still a pervasive idea, but I think... Today, it's understood to be metaphorical, whereas, like, I feel like Victorian society, that period, it was much more literally believed. Ah. So the the reason that Dorian doesn't look evil is because the painting has been taking on the effects of age as well as the evil deeds to essentially reflect Dorian's soul. Mm-hmm. Now, Basil has a niece in the film, um, and she's, like... Five or something. She's like three or something. When... I think she's like, yeah, like early elementary school kind of age. She, okay. She's a child. She's like five when Dorian gets his portrait painted. Um, but Gladys is all grown up now mm-hmm. and wants to marry Dorian. Yeah, the implication is like she had a childhood crush on him and that that never went away because, you know... He still looks just as hot today as he did 20 years ago. Yeah. Now, she does have a suitor already named David Stone, um, but it's hard to kind of call him a romantic rival, because he's just kind of, like, 
for lack of a better word, he's in the friend zone. Yeah, like, he's there taking her out on dates, and she's, like, straight up saying while he's in the room, like, I'm going to marry Dorian Gray one day, and he's just sitting there like, <sighs> well, you Such know. Which is my life, despite a name like David Stone. <laughs> <laughs> I was invented by Hollywood, can you tell? <laughs> now, Gladys, uh, upset that Dorian has not yet proposed to her, decides to propose to him, and Dorian rebukes her. What's funny about him, like, rebuking Gladys is that you can read it both ways. Like, in in the one hand, it's another act of cruelty from Dorian, because, like, it shatters her heart. But on the other hand, it's an act of mercy, because Dorian kind of believes that, like, Gladys is good and pure, and anything that he touches, you know, turns to shit. So, like, stay away from me. Yeah. Basil goes to see Dorian, because, um... He's a little apprehensive about the idea of Gladys marrying him because of all these rumors that he's hearing. Uh, So he basically goes to Dorian one night, um, right before he's about to catch the midnight train going anywhere. Paris. Specifically to Paris. Um, (laughs) And he's like, Dorian, you should know what people are saying. Now, one word from you, and I'll believe that these aren't true. Yeah, you're my friend. Just tell me that it's all a lie. And then uh, I'll be fine with this marriage. Yeah. Like, even though you said no, but I'll be fine. Yeah. And Dorian is like, you want to see my soul? I'll show you. Come with me to the attic. Yeah. You are the one person who has the right to see my soul kind of thing. Yeah, because he does kind of blame Basil because... Basil made the painting. Yeah. Even though, like, it's not like Basil has magic powers. Like, whatever. So, he shows Basil the painting, um, and he is shocked at what has become of his painting. He kind of describes this, like, the way it's kind of decayed through a a, a sort of moral leprosy, which Mm -hmm. I love the phrase of that. And then Dorian starts panicking, thinking, what if... Basil tells Gladys, I can't have Gladys thinking poorly of me. Yeah. So he kills Basil. And I mean, hey, he's had that portrait locked up in his, uh, you know, old schoolroom all these years. What's a body? <laughs> so he calls up an old friend um, named Alan Campbell. Um, now, it's clear that they were friends. They got into some d- debauchery, and then they split because Alan was like, you're a bad influence. Like, don't like this. Friends. Yes. And Alan's like, fuck, I'm not helping you deal with a body. And Dorian's like, yeah, but you really need to help me. And he's like, no. And he's like, really? If I say pretty please with the cherry on top? And he's like, no. And he's like, too bad. I'm going to blackmail you because we committed sodomy together. Not explicitly said as sodomy, but um, yeah, the implication I'm... is very heavy that, like, no, my wife must not know. Yeah. There's a lot of... This movie does a lot of implying without saying for a lot of things, but the implication here is that, like, Alan and Dorian, you know, used to do the deed, and now Alan's, like, married, and this cannot be known. Um, so Alan's like, well, I guess I gotta dispose of a body. Now, he's a scientist. He sciences the body away. Yeah, he, he like, dissolves it in acid or whatever a yeah. chemist does. Um, and then uh, he later does commit suicide over having done this. Mm -hmm. Dorian, meanwhile, plans to marry Gladys. This switches, um, decides to marry, and 
he does occasionally feel guilty that she's marrying this terrible, terrible person with this terrible, terrible secret up in the attic. I keep calling it an attic. It's an old school room, but it's at the top of the stairs. It's an attic. Um, he clearly has a lot of self-loathing, as seen by when he drops off. Gladys, after a date, he heads to a brothel. Now, on the way, he passes a street preacher, and we see in the crowd is Sybil Vane's older brother, James, who has, like, a little toy noose <laughs> that he plays with. So, Dorian goes to this brothel. He's upstairs getting busy, and um, he has someone there playing the piano, and it's Prelude, which is what he would play for Sybil. James walks by, hears this, comes in, and is, like, looking for Dorian, but doesn't know what he looks like. All he knows him by is Sir Tristan. As Dorian is leaving, um, an old friend of his, Adrian, kind of heckles him a bit and calls him Sir Tristan um, because they've had a falling out, and Adrian's circling the drain, as it were, and when he hears the name Sir Tristan called, James goes, ah, this must be the guy. So he corners Dorian, and Dorian's like, I can't be the guy You're looking for someone who was 20 when, like, 20 years ago. Like, I, I'm not that guy. Obviously he is, um, but James lets him go. Adrian catches up with James and says, no, that's Dorian Gray. He just looked 22 for 20 years. No, really, it's this guy. <laughs> so now, Dorian has a stalker. Dorian, Gladys, and all of their friends are headed to Dorian's cottage or whatever, as you do when you're rich, you go hunting. There's a hunting accident, and one of Dorian's friends accidentally shoots James in the bush. He's aiming for a rabbit, but hits a man instead. And um, no one seems to know who this person is. He doesn't have any identification, but Dorian recognizes James. I love that James just decided he was going to, like, sneak up on Dorian out of the bushes during this, like, hunting expedition. Yeah, he he's not a very good planning type. So seeing, like, yet another person die as a result of, like, the shit he's caused, Dorian feels super guilty again and decides to break off the engagement with Gladys, head back to London from the hunting lodge because he doesn't want to ruin another life, basically. Meanwhile, David, you know, romantic rival David? David Stone. Um, he's gone snooping in um, Dorian's house, and he shares this story with Lord Henry and Gladys of this very hideous portrait um, up in the attic. Um, like a debauched old uncle. Yeah. It, it's because David mentions that the cat's in it, and that kind of tweaks their memory. And then Gladys is like, hey, did it have my uncle's like signature? Yes. And it's like, oh. And like everyone starts to figure everything out, I think. Yeah. So the catch-up... In time to see Dorian stab the portrait, except as he's stabbed the portrait, he's stabbed himself. The portrait melts away to the original, and they see Dorian lying on the ground as he was depicted in the portrait, just hideous mm -hmm. and very creepy with like frazzled hair and stuff. Now, Lord Henry is like, Oh god, what have I done? Because he recognizes that, like, he sees what's happened, mm -hmm. and he's like, fuck. Yeah. Um, this is what my philosophy leads to. Um, and David leads Gladys out of the room, and the implication is that, hey, no. she'll be okay. She has another romantic person in her life. Yeah. The end. Yeah, I think 
Dorian, you know, <laughs> I understand his logic. He stabs the painting because he assumes that, like, if he destroys the painting, then, like, the magic will be over and he'll just start to, like, age normally. But they, like, switch and he dies. Yeah. I mean, we've we've all seen Faust. We've all seen... Yeah. Student of Prague. Like, we, we get it. Yeah. Um, what I thought was very interesting with Picture of Dorian Gray is, like, when it starts, it, it's just a literary adaptation, like, with mm-hmm. the credits. Like, mm-hmm. it's very, like, oh, prim and proper, oh, ho, ho, and, like, witty dialogue. Oh, isn't Lord Henry just so clever and witty? Oh, ho, 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 ho. All of Lord Henry's dialogue is, like, stuff that you would clearly find in, like, a... Uh, like a quote book of Oscar Wilde. Absolutely. Every every line of dialogue he has are all these kind of like pronouncements that sound vaguely profound, but when you think about them, don't really mean anything. Like saying things like, the problem with horror films is that they use too much film showing not enough horror. But of course you can't have it the other way around and have too much horror and not enough film or else you wouldn't be able to see it. And you're like, wait. Is that a real thing? I just wrote that. That's just okay. me Im- it, That's just me impersonating uh, the style of dialogue that this guy has. Absolutely. It's clearly a horror movie, but it doesn't want you to know it's a horror movie. Yes. And that's very interesting, I think. Um, it makes sense for an MGM film. Um, it makes sense with the past horror films that MGM has made, particularly the 1941 Jekyll and Hyde, because mm-hmm. it had the same kind of opening. But it's interesting to me that they found a way to make it horror despite their own trepidations. Yeah, it's it's a movie that has a lot of pretensions. It starts and ends with like a quote from a poem. Um, it's got, you know, a lot of like very high flute and highly educated like references. People are handing each other books and saying like the titles of them with the assumption that like oh, you'll understand in the audience there, like, what this means and so on. Um, I would sort of characterize it as it's horror for the upper-crust intellectual. (laughs) Sure. Now, I briefly mentioned, and Ben mentioned in the context setting, that there is narration here and there throughout the film. It's not constant, but it is, like, here and there. Narration is by Cedric Hardwick. Um, and what I like about it is it serves to explain certain things where if you didn't have it and you were just watching Dorian do things, you'd be like, well, why is he, why why is he doing that? Yeah, it helps us get inside Dorian's head. And it also replicates the tension that you get when you are actually reading Gothic literature. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you talk about the, like, trepidation that you feel. And I think what's remarkable in many ways is that this is kind of like a polite, tepid, like high society horror movie, yet it surpasses Man in Half Moon Street from last week in every way, and is certainly horror when that movie we ultimately decided was not. And I think it's really interesting to think about why that is and like what is this movie doing that makes it horror when that movie wasn't. Sure. I think um, to do so, we should kind of mention some things with cinematography and the mise-en-scene. Absolutely. Um, So all of it is very well done, and everything is very well constructed. Like, the way that the camera will swivel so that, like, the cat statue is, like, right in the middle. It's clearly, like, 
you know, the center of, like, what's causing tension. You see the uh, room, the attic, basically, up uh, in, like, the far corner. Like, it's very well constructed so that it feels like there's tension. Yes. It's, it's a lot of it is just that it's a better made movie all around. There's this sort of superbly controlled atmosphere of dread yes. that gets all the way through. And yeah, it's, it's things like the mixture of cinematography and set design where you've got the cat and you have, you know, what Sarah's talking about, these shots where you see the cat in the foreground and it's looking, it, it seems like the statue of the cat is looking up at the room. And then they've done something really clever where they've put the cat's in the living room and then out in the foyer is the staircase that heads up to this room. And so there's a door between the two rooms and the door frame has like a window above it with like a circle so that you cannot see the room at the top of the stairs until the camera angles up in the right way. And then if you do see the room, then it's like framed in that window to draw attention to it. Like there's just every little element is coming together to reinforce the other elements. And I think even the editing Mm -hmm. is done um, to reinforce that as well. Everything feels very fluid, despite the fact that it's adapting the whole novel. Mm -hmm. Like, other times where we've had adaptations, they've had to cut stuff out to kind of keep it, like, working. Um, But this, like, it keeps everything in. Everything feels like we're constantly, like, moving, in in the sense that we're not lagging anywhere. I I would describe it as, like, a continuity-style editing. Yeah. That helps maintain that feeling of dread, the tension, and we also have, like, because of the way that the door frame needs to be in order to frame the attic door up above, or um, even the look of the brothel, everything feels very German Expressionist. Yes. Um, and controlled in that way that German Expressionism is. Exactly. Which I think is, like, A, obviously, for a horror movie, but B, makes p- total sense when you think about aestheticism and their, like obsession with the artificial because German expressionism is all about the artificial. Yeah. It's funny how like there are certain sets and scenes in this movie that are like, ah, this is a period drawing room film where people talk about polite conversation around the, the afternoon tea table or whatever. And then like when Dorian goes to this like seedy dive brothel, (laughs) that's like, on the docks or whatever it's it's like he goes into a different universe he like travels into this like from regular old london into like weird bizarro german expressionism london where it's like there's this like wide shot that's like a map painting of this building he goes to and you're just like wait what the fuck is this it's just this like (laughs) how is this standing yeah it's just this derelict building in the middle of like nothing <laughs> like like it's not up to code like which who, who constructed who, who this? made this tim burton ass building <laughs> um i think even like the music does yeah. an amazing job here both with maintaining that dread but it does uh, a lot of the lifting for storytelling as well well it's doing like a lot of really good use of leitmotif right where like we're getting themes repeated in, like, different tones and different keys to represent different emotions. Yeah, for example, we have Chopin's Prelude repeated every now and then when there's, like, even the song itself is, like, emotional and sad, but apparently describing love. 
Uh, that gets repeated whenever things are getting intense. Sybil's song, Little Yellow Bird, is repeated. Goodbye, little yellow bird, I'd rather brave the cold On a leafless tree than a prisoner be In a cage of gold Just so it's said. Little Yellowbird versus Dorian's Egyptian cat. Mm -hmm. You know it's not going to end well. Um, And then, of course, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Okay, yeah. scenes in this movie are the darkest ones. Yes. And I think the scene with Dorian and his buddy Adrian and James Vane and the couple of implied prostitutes is probably the best scene in the movie up there with the murder of Basil. Mm -hmm. And it's like this amazing scene that mixes all of these elements we've been talking about. The set design the cinematography, the editing, and the music. James hears Chopin's prelude. He goes in, and he finds the guy playing it. And it's this, like, old geezer at the piano. <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, because he thought it was Dorian. And he's like, what What the hell is that? And he says, oh, it's it's prelude, you know? And James is like, well, play anything else. And what I love about it is that he switches from playing prelude, which is this, like, super melodramatic dark, stormy kind of song to Moonlight Sonata, which, like, in this context just immediately takes on, like, a very, like, depressed, elegiac, melancholy tone as, like, James moves over to this table and sits down with this prostitute and, like, explains his tragic backstory and his need to find this man and kill him. And then, (laughs) as he's telling the story, the door opens behind him and it's Dorian standing there in the door and he doesn't even see James and James doesn't even see him and he walks over to Adrian and Adrian gives this speech about what a shithead Dorian is and calls him Sir Tristan it's just it's just so impeccable like every moment of that scene is so good the murder of Basil up in the like schoolroom with the painting um the only source of illumination in that room is this like hanging lamp And so, of course, when Dorian stabs Basil in the back, the lamp goes swinging wildly, and we've got the shadows everywhere going up and down on Dorian's face and across the painting, and yeah, it's, it's, the visuals in this movie are pretty amazing, and that's before we even talk about the use of color. Yes. Which is, of course, impossibly striking, because there's no way you can be watching a movie in black and white and just have it pop into color for, like, one shot and then back and not have that be, like, the most memorable thing you've ever seen in a movie. And the music underlines it, too. Mm -hmm. Like, when you see the decrepit, grotesque version of the painting, the music's just like... (laughs) 
But at the start of the movie, when we see the beautiful Dorian, and it's the first shot in Technicolor that shows you that it the music, yeah, it's this, it's this romantic flourish. Um, yeah, and, angels you know, come in, and there are other movies that you know do a black and white and color thing. But even if you think of like the classic example of this, which is. Wizard of Oz. It's a transition. So that allows you to have this gradual transition into color. This is just a cut, and suddenly it's a color shot, and we only see the painting. It's The painting is what we see in color, uh, whether it's when it's nice-looking or when it's ugly-looking. And, of course, the lurid color in the Albright version of the painting is you know something that, of course, just begs for Technicolor. Yeah, it is... Um beautifully grotesque that's the only way to really describe it yeah absolutely you know i do have to say that whenever i see this movie i do always feel a little bit cheated that we don't get one more color shot at the end of the movie like you would almost expect that um perhaps of the shot where the painting like melts from the evil version back into the good version you would think that that would be like in color but maybe that's too much to ask with, like, incredibly uh, elaborate dissolve effect that they're doing there between the two shots. Because not only is it this very specific dissolve, so it doesn't just look like the Wolfman transforming. It looks like one painting is melting into the other. But also, they've got the lamp swinging again. So, like, if you remember how time-lapse dissolve is done as a technique in film where it's you have to, you know, make the change, take a shot, make the change, take the shot but you're doing that with a swinging lamp. Like, I have no idea how you're doing that. So maybe just doing that in color as well was just too much to ask. <laughs> yeah, it would be a lot. So you brought up Man in Half Moon Street right. earlier. And um, in that episode last week, we critiqued the value of its adaptation. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't know who it was adapting a thing for. Yeah, it didn't know who the audience was. It didn't who know what character we should be focusing on. It didn't know if the characters should be likable or not likable. It really had no fucking clue what it was doing. And I have to say that Picture of Dorian Gray is a fantastic adaptation because it takes the novel, which is in and of itself a manifesto about aestheticism, and just, like, on film, like, just brings in more Oscar Wilde and more aestheticism. Like, it it drenches the story in more of the philosophy than what Wilde had in the original novel. Right. So I think it's, like, a fantastic adaptation, and this is, like, honestly, if you're adapting something that has been taken as a manifesto or or something where people point to, like, see, this is what they were trying to do with this philosophy. Doing it in this way where, like, you're directly quoting Oscar Wilde and saying, like, yes, that I just quoted Oscar Wilde. <laughs> um, they have this, like, recurring motif of Sir Tristan, obviously, um, but at one point we see an illustration of Sir Tristan, and it's done by this artist named Aubrey Beardsley. Aubrey Beardsley, A, did the illustrations to Wilde's play Salome, but also was the illustrator for the quarterly magazine called The Yellow Book, which they also directly reference. Um, and The Yellow Book was the magazine for aestheticism. Mm-hmm. Um, they also directly reference um, the book uh, The Light of Asia. Um, Basil gives it to Dorian to be like, here, this will cure you of your hedonistic ways. And that's a very, like, 
it's not from Asia. It's written by a British dude. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an Orientalist book. And as I said, aestheticism just loves that shit. And even uh, there's at one point where Doyne gives a party and it's like, it's, it's Orientalism on display, basically. Yeah, he's got a bunch of like... Indian dancers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's like direct quotes that Lord Henry says that are like, that's Oscar Wilde. Like he said, he actually said that. Um, it, so yeah, I really appreciate that as the script was being written to adapt the novel, it wasn't just rewriting what was on the page. They actually like did the research and did the work to be like, to make this film a manifesto for aestheticism. Yeah. I think it's, it's beholden when you are adapting a work that expresses a philosophy it is beholden on you not only to get the story and themes of the work right, but to produce the adaptation in such a way that is consistent with the philosophy, mm-hmm. right? I think that's very important, and um, I appreciate that being done in this movie. Comparing this to Man in Half Moon Street, the other thing that I wanted to talk about was, like, what is this movie doing right that that movie didn't? You know, we've talked about the cinematography. Well, Man in Half Moon Street didn't have bad cinematography. Like, it was fine. But I think there, what it really comes down to is two things. One, we see and experience Dorian's cruelty um, to everyone around him, even Sybil and Gladys. Yeah. Whereas um, Nils Astler's character in Man in Half Moon Street, there was a lot of, like, lip service to him being a bad dude. And there were some times where he got, like, angry at people. But, like, the worst thing that he did in that movie was he saved a dude from suicide and then locked him up in a room until he killed himself again, accidentally. Um, But, like, with his girlfriend, like, he's always just the most romantic fellow, right? Yeah, and it's, like we said in that episode, Esther is giving, like, a very good performance. But here, the man playing Dorian, Hurt Hatfield, is also doing an amazing job acting and the way his expression will change or the way he'll like pause and then say his line like it there's showing that there's more guilt and self-loathing um than he than dorian would actually let on well and the other thing is like i mean there's superb performances from everyone in this movie like you know, George Sanders, Angela Lansbury, Donna Reed, uh, everybody's doing a great job. Herd Hatfield is, of course, the standout. Um, and the thing about his performance of Dorian is it's such, like, a perfect performance of soullessness. Mm-hmm. Like, just the blankness yeah. behind his eyes. And it's really subtle in a way that isn't common in Hollywood movies of this vintage. And, you know... I mean, he's great, but some of the most memorable characters in the movie are really minor ones, like Alan Campbell and Adrian Singleton, who we only see in this movie as, like, like they're friends of Dorian's, but we don't see the friendship they have with Dorian. We don't see what Dorian did to them. We don't see their arcs. We just see them as, like, the refuse of what Dorian has made of them, which is, like, a very evocative way of suggesting what a monster Dorian has become without actually telling you what he's done by showing these men who are just destroyed. And there's a lot of um, 
praise I can give to this movie for being willing to have a character like Alan who in in his only scene just speaks in this like broken monotone which is something that you just don't see in Hollywood movies of this period because there was a fear of having subdued performances like that because then how can someone tell that you're acting? Like, what's the difference between that and just reading the lines then? But, like, so to have an entire scene between a character like Dorian who sort of says all his lines like this, you have to save me, Alan, otherwise they'll hang me. You have to dispose of this body for me. And then a character like Alan, who sort of says all of his lines like, no, no, I won't do it for you, Dorian. Like, back and forth, and be brave enough to do a scene like that, I really appreciate. Because it's, it gets across who these guys are, right? Just how destroyed they are. And, you know, the film is really good at hinting at things that Dorian has done without actually telling you what they are. Um and sort of hinting at these unspeakable evils. Um, now, on the one hand, that kind of feels a bit overly cautious, and it could almost be a weakness for a film like this not to spell it out, to insist that this guy is terrible while never showing us what makes him so terrible. But on the other hand, it does leave it to the viewer to then sort of impart upon Dorian whatever unspeakable evil they feel fits the clues in the movie. And the fact that he is so indifferent about them, or not, yes. like, almost, like, apathetic. Yes. About... Yeah, it doesn't matter to him yeah. that he's destroyed lives. It it just doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, I think that's, like, kind of the nail in the coffin, basically, for this guy is a shitty dude. Like, you can see some of the guilt come through, but the, um, like... Dorian's performance to the other characters yes. as apathetic is it, something. Yeah, it's it's important to Dorian that other people think that Dorian doesn't care. Yeah. And of course, a lot of these transgressions are implied to be sexual in nature. Um, one thing that you notice is like his portrait seems to suffer from something like herpes or syphilis with all the like um, sort of red blotching all over the face and the mouth. Yeah. Um, and then with the characters of Alan and Adrian and in some of the other dialogue, there's definitely like the clear implication that one of Dorian's so-called vices is the same as Oscar Wilde's. Um, yeah. And but, I don't think that's us reading into it the way that this film has been like, no, Oscar Wilde is in this, like yeah. been so clear about it. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's tough because like, by keeping it vague, you can kind of decide in your own mind what's terrible about Dorian. And that's kind of a, a, a boon for the movie, because if the movie did just kind of say, oh yeah, he's a monster because he's gay, that might not, like, read the same way today as it would have, you know, in 1945 or in 1890-whatever, this whenever the book came out. But yeah, I think that, like, the key thing, of course, is always to remember that Victorian reputation context that is so important to this movie and to Jekyll and Hyde. And it's always interesting to me to think about this movie in comparison to Jekyll and Hyde, because it shares so many elements, that Victorian setting, that obsession with reputation, the implication of all of these unseen horrific vices, um, even the, like, good girl 
bad girl structure. Not that Sybil's a bad girl here, but it's that same, like, she's at the music hall, and then there's the other love interest who's more part of respectable society. And what's interesting here is MGM sort of succeeding at remaking the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde by not doing Jekyll and Hyde, by doing Dorian Gray, whereas their actual attempt to remake Jekyll and Hyde didn't work. Yeah, Dorian Gray isn't about sexual repression. Yeah, and I think it's just that this, you know, it's what we talked about in the remake of Jekyll and Hyde episode, that, like, to do what they wanted to do, they needed to be telling a different story. Well, here's that different story. Exactly, yeah. And I think, just, like, to be clear, um, I don't think the people making this movie wanted to argue that homosexuality is an evil. It's clearly Dorian's treatment of people. Yes, it's Dorian's treatment of people that is evil and what he has done to these people. But I think the reason why I bring it up is because when the narrator says things like, and then Dorian went off into the night and did unspeakable things that no one could even mention in a narration. Um, (laughs) It's hard to avoid the implication that what the narrator is referring to is, and then he went and did gay sex. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, it's clear that, like, his relationships with these other men have not been, you know, the most loving and caring of relationships. Yeah. The last thing that I think helps this movie come across as horror, even though not a lot of explicitly horrific events happen in it, is that the horror of Dorian's unnatural existence is so explicitly emphasized. You know, that sort of unheimliche kind of quality of, like, there's a painting up here that ages and Dorian doesn't, and that's fucking weird. And, like... (laughs) The effect that that horror has on Dorian and on the other characters in the story. That everyone kind of reacts to that as being fucked up and, like, not, you know, and and being... This is one of the few movies where when people talk about something being, like, against God, it doesn't feel like lip service. Yeah. Like, Dorian himself is expresses at moments, like, boredom at the fact that he's not changing... And, um, and, like, anxiety about the fact that he hasn't changed. Like, right. Like, he, he, it's almost like, you know, when, like, you see a lion pacing in a cage? Mm-hmm. Sometimes Dorian feels like that, where he's just, like, looking for any fucking distraction. Yeah, absolutely. Because he's stuck where he is. And I think what's also really interesting about this film and about, like, what makes it horror is, like, the film technique itself mm. is underlining. This is horrific. Yes. But the way that the music underlines the the painting, the way that... We shift into color to see the painting, which yeah. underlines, you know... Exactly. Like, um, everyone's reactions to it, like, it's very uh, believable, I guess, that this is horrific. And the other thing is, is, you know, with that whole this is against God train of thought that horror loves to do, this might be, you know, just my own biases speaking, but... It, it it's hard here in 2019 to get really worked up about these movies where people, you know, like in Man and Half Moon Street, see like a scientific advance and be like, you've gone too far. How dare you sin against God by figuring out some science or whatever the fuck. 
Um, you know, and it's like, man, I have an iPhone. Like, <laughs> oh, he mixed some potions. Like, ugh. Whereas here, it's like, yeah, man, that's a painting that ages. That's not, that's fucked up. That's against God. That's not shit should be. Um, I, yes, it is definitely refreshing to have it not, like, the, the only scientist in this movie is, like, in one scene, and then when the chief of Scotland Yard is like, yeah, he was an upcoming scientist, like, I don't know what happened. It's like, <laughs> clearly this world is separate from, like, whatever world Bella Lugosi or Boris Karloff inhabit. Yeah, you know the what universal I mean? world where all scientists are inherently insane. Yes. The thing is... While minute for minute, not a lot of horror is really occurring, and there's a lot of these polite drawing room discussions and, you know, afternoon tea sessions and so on, there's no scenes like in Man and Half Moon Street where people are going, well, suppose this was true, and talking about what if this movie was horror? You know, there's no pussyfooting around. When the time comes for the horror, the horror is there, and they're doing it. Yeah. What I will say is my one qualm about this movie mm-hmm. is the horror is clearly happening to a bad guy and it's like look at the effect that these evil deeds has had on his soul that's horrific and maybe this is the result of the code but like the sexual assault that's implied on the women mm. and we, this really only seems to happen during the montage of the 18 years have passed. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's just kind of hand-waved away, and that bothers me, but at the same time, like, it's looming in the back of your mind, especially as Gladys is like, no, I'm going to marry this dude, and David's like, but there are bad things I've heard. And especially in light of 2019 and the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And even you bringing up Harvey Weinstein earlier, like, it's it's a very relevant horror to today in the way of, like, yeah, like, dudes be shitty. You can't always tell, like, who's shitty. Yeah. Um, like, the phrase wolf in sheep's clothing really comes through here. Absolutely. And I guess what I'm trying to say about my qualm with this movie is, um, I feel like the movie isn't being, like showing comeuppance for these guys being shitty. Like, Dorian was already going down this route before the painting saved him, basically. Mm. Like, in a way, like, the painting was both a blessing and a curse. But, like, Lord Henry is still out here espousing deeply misogynistic views, and people just, like, go like, oh, I guess you know us women too well. (laughs) There's a couple of layers of problems here. There is that code problem where they can't, address these issues head on. Then there's the fact that this movie has to walk this fine line of, you know, implying that Dorian is this monster without actually telling you what he's doing that's monstrous. And part of that's for code reason. But I think another part of that is that the story falls apart if we lose all sympathy for Dorian. Dorian has to be a monster, but we still have to feel a little bit sympathetic towards him and the, like, ringing through that his soul is going under for the story to still keep us invested because otherwise we just go like ah fuck this guy and stop watching sure right 
So if you go into too much detail about what an awful duty is and all the awful things he's done, you lose that sympathy. And so you have to walk this really fine line, and that prevents you from like addressing those issues head on. And then the other layer is that at the end of the day, this isn't Dorian Gray's fault, but it's not about the victims. Yeah. That's sort of ultimately the thing. You know, if you want to do a movie that really addresses all of these issues, that movie has to be a movie about the victims. And if you tried to address those issues in Dorian Gray, you would have to start spending a lot of time on people and the things that are ultimately irrelevant to the story. Yeah. And that's kind of the problem. So you have these women who Dorian comes into a room and they give him an odd look and kind of walk away, even though their other friends don't understand why they feel that way about him. But unfortunately, at the end of the day, the movie isn't about that woman, right? And that's that's not a failing of Dorian Gray, but I would argue it's a failing of our wider culture not telling more stories about that woman. Sure. But ultimately, like, that's not what this movie is about. And I think that's, that's sort of where you're, you're brushing up on some things here. And I think it also comes down to the fact that with Dorian's crimes being made ambiguous, we're all kind of free to, like, read into the blanks what we kind of feel the most strongly about in terms of a person's, you know, ill doings. And I think that's why, like, you're responding strongest to the implications of, like, those crimes that, like, resonate the strongest with you, right? Yeah, fair enough, yeah. So are we, are we ready to move on into ranking here, Sarah? Yeah. Okay. So where are you looking? So I had a tough time with trying to figure out where to rank this film. Okay. I basically started with Phantom Carriage at number five. Oh, interesting spot to look at, but all right. Because that movie is also, don't be a shitty dude, it'll corrupt your soul. Yeah, fair. (laughs) Um, The horrors of poverty and all that. Uh, Now, that film is, whew, uh, it is an experience. Whereas Dorian Gray, I feel like, is at least a little entertaining and I enjoy watching it. Yeah, Dorian Gray has a lot of cinematic elements that are so good. You know, you heard us gushing about them earlier that you can watch Dorian Gray for pleasure. Yeah. I feel like Phantom Carriage is something that you just like show to children to scare them straight <laughs> in Swedish elementary school. Oh, it's just unrelenting. So I, it's that unrelenting nature that I feel like Phantom Carriage um, should remain in the spot. On the other hand, Phantom Carriage is unrelenting. Right up until the moment that it relents, which is the ending of the movie where everything becomes happy forever. Dorian fucking dies. Yeah, that's fair. So I was kind of looking at number five as my ceiling. Okay. And then going down, I felt that the lowest I would probably put this is around Son of Frankenstein. Because this (laughs) film is... So that's at number nine. Uh Uh-huh. Picture of Dorian Gray is through and through a horror movie. And MGM is doing a really great job here. It's 1945. It's really... It's not trying to, like, hedge its bets with, like, comedy. Like, it has, like, some comedic wit. But for the most part, it's all horror. Versus movies like Frankenstein or Dracula, which hedge its bets because it's so early in the genre. Yeah. And I think, um, like, part of the reason why Frankenstein and Dracula 
10 and 12 respectively are so high is because of their iconic value. And Picture of Dorian Gray is pretty iconic. Like, the fucking paintings and Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. You know? Like, it's... it's Well, and it's like, can you even think of another version of Picture of Dorian Gray? Like, I know that there have been ones since this movie, but, like, none that have not been, like, just kind of shitty, you know, I don't know, direct-to-DVD TV movie garbage. Like, <laughs> it's not, you know... With Dracula, with Frankenstein, it's like, yes, there's Bela Lugosi, but there's also Christopher Lee, you know? With Picture Dorian Gray, like, this is it. Yeah. This is the movie. So the reason I stopped at Son of Frankenstein is because we really felt like that was a renaissance of horror coming back to horror after the, like, three or four year break, Um, and I felt like it was more comparable to Picture of Dorian Gray than, say, Frankenstein below that. So what's funny is, um, I didn't expect this to happen, but your range is entirely above mine. Oh. So I started looking at number one, which is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I felt that was a very natural thing to compare to this movie. And I think that whether it's the difference in tone, at the end of the day, an Oscar Wilde movie is always, I think, going to have a little bit of a lighter touch than a Robert Louis Stevenson movie. You know, that's just the difference between their styles. Um, also, that's that pre-code, post-code thing. But Jekyll and Hyde's always going to take the lead here because it's able to go for it in a way that this movie can't. So I started looking down, and a lot of the movies in this range just felt like they had more bite to them mm-hmm. than Dorian Gray does. Now, that's not to say that Dorian Gray doesn't have bite, but Dorian Gray does also have a lot of scenes of people wittily reciting Oscar Wildisms back and forth to one another. So I looked at the list, and I kept making my way down, and I hit Invisible Man at eight. Claude Rains as the Invisible Man is, I think, scarier than Herd Hatfield as Dorian Gray, because even though they're both monsters, the scale of monster is just higher with the Invisible Man. Fair enough, yeah. So... I I made Invisible Man my ceiling, which is right above your floor. And then I started looking down from there through your Frankensteins and your Draculas and, you know, looking at stuff like Murders in the Zoo, which is another very, like, chilling depiction of domestic violence, but, you know, also has some, like, dopey comic relief stuff in it. Um, and then below that there's uh, Fairman Maria, which is this, like, chilling story about trying to escape the SS And below that, you have Wolfman, which is this, like, allegory about the rise of Nazi Germany. And then below Wolfman, you have Return of the Vampire, which is a lot of fun and we really enjoyed, but isn't really about anything. It's just a fun, good time. And below that, you start to see more movies that are kind of just a fun, good time, you know? And so... (laughs) You would describe Caligari as a fun, good time. So, my range was 9 to 16. My floor... I thought the lowest I would put this is below Wolfman and above Return of the Vampire. The highest I would put this is above Son of Frankenstein, below Invisible Man. Yeah, I was thinking about the Invisible Man and the way that in the discussion of that film, um, you likened it to the horrors of anonymity with online trolls and Mm -hmm. such. Um, and I think there's something to be said about Picture of Dorian Gray in the modern context of the Me Too movement. Yeah. Uh, see, here's the thing. 
and and you feel free to push back on me with this. Always. But personally, the reason why I think I think both movies are still relevant. Yeah. But I think Invisible Man to me is scarier is because if we extract the modern day relevancy out of these two movies, Picture of Dorian Gray is about Kevin Spacey. Like it's about the guy everyone likes who's really nice and popular but is actually a shit heel. Yeah. Versus Invisible Man is about the dude who can walk into a fucking Walmart or whatever without a background check or an ID check, buy an assault rifle, and as a completely anonymous guy, just walk into a crowd and murder a bunch of people. Yeah. And I find that guy scarier. It's a different source of horror, obviously. Wow, that seems very, (laughs) like, no shit, Sarah. But it's like... One is, like, a fear of the public sphere, and one is the fear of the private sphere. And a lot of this might just be my, like, cishet male privilege talking, where I'm not put into situations often where I'm given reason to fear the private sphere, but that's kind of where I'm sitting. Well, I think the the key difference here, as far as these movies go, is the way that Invisible Man depicts... The horror of the public sphere is like, yeah, you could have been on that train that he just derailed. Like, yeah, it, it's it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. is very scary. Mm-hmm. Um, with Picture of Dorian Gray, it's almost like, well, just avoid people who are like, be avoid people who are like that. But like, the thing is, is like the the point of Dorian Gray as a story is that you don't know who those people are. You can't tell by looking. That's the point of the story. You can't tell by looking who those shitty people are. Yes. And while that is scary, they're still only attacking, like, one by one by one. Yeah. And sure, their influence, you know, pervades, like, a sick virus, but it's not, like, a 1 to 500 ratio. Mm-hmm. So... This feels wrong a little bit. What? To be, like, deciding ranking based on, like, kill ratios. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's not really how I was how I was trying to, like, yeah. think about it. It's not just like, well, the Invisible Man's killed more people, so he's scarier. Like, that's not really the yeah, way I was looking at it, actually. Sure. Um, but, it, like, that is something I was thinking about as I was looking at my range, which is why, like... I went to Son of Frankenstein below. Um, so I, I would actually be comfortable with this going below Invisible Man, above Son of Frankenstein, if you're okay going that high with your range. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's the bottom of your range, the top of my range. I think that's fair. Let's do that. Okay. So entering the list at number nine is The Picture of Dorian Gray from 1945, directed by Albert Lewin. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, like the 1941 Jekyll and Hyde, which is episode 87, or the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde, which is episode 27. On our website, you can also find an appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line there. You can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or talk to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed and listen to us on whatever podcasting app you prefer. 
on Apple Podcasts, if that's where you listen to the show. We would really appreciate it if you left a rating or a review. Uh, We appreciate that on other services. It's just that it's really helpful for the podcast on Apple Podcasts because it's part of how they, like, chart podcasts and show them to new potential listeners. Um, Another way to help out the show is by simply telling a friend about us. We're heading into the spooky season. We're heading into October. You've got friends telling you, hey, what old movies should I watch that are good? And you're like, listen, man, I don't have time to answer your question, but I do have this podcast. And you just throw some headphones and an old iPod at them. And you say, I've loaded it up onto this old iPod Nano. Here you go. And then you (laughs) throw that at them and disappear into the night. Um, Twirl your cape and turn into a bat. That's right. Or you can head over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. One dollar patrons get thanked on the show. Five dollar patrons get access to weekly bonus audio. Ten dollar patrons get access to written content that I write that includes horror short fiction and essays. And all throughout October, we're going to be having some real special material coming out last year. Sarah put out a EP of spooky horror music. Yeah, five songs. One came out each week, and then one on Halloween. And we're going to be doing some other stuff this year that, like last year, will be available to patrons of all levels. So head on over to Patreon, sign up, get all of our cool stuff. Uh, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Is it going to be, like, another big one? Next week, Sarah, we are watching the inexplicably titled The Vampire's Ghost from Republic Pictures. <laughs> so, Well, we give you the highs and the lows here on Scream Scene. Join us next week for some real trash. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.